Well, if you are just uh, joining us today, we are in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Amos that will take us all the way through to Palm Sunday. And here's the main theme of Amos. There's really no way to sugarcoat this. God will judge his own covenant people for their false worship and their corrupt practices. Good morning, everyone. I'd love to see the Hallmark version of Amos, wouldn't you? And here's the reason God will do this. The people worship God according to his own image and not based on his law. And on top of that, when they leave their worship services, they work hard to build their brands, upgrade their homes, all at the expense of the needy around them. And it wasn't just some individuals who did this. Personal vices oozed into political structures. The legal and economic systems made it easy for the well-to-do to climb up the social ladder. All they had to do was step on the backs of the poor. And against this backdrop, Amos calls the people of God to repent. First, he calls the nations to repent. That's what we saw in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, we see that his message is specifically focused on God's people. That's the message of Amos in a nutshell. Now in chapter 3, we have the beginning of a short series of sermons that Amos will preach in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And listen to how he starts each of these sermons. Chapter 3, 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Chapter 4. Hear this word you cows of Bashan. Hear this word in chapter 5, that I take up over you in lamentation. Clearly, these are not pastoral candidating sermons for Amos. He would probably never get hired by a local church for preaching these words. It's one thing to start a sermon to try to grab people's attention. It's another to start a sermon by grabbing people by the collar, which is exactly what Amos does. So why does he take this approach? It got to the point where the people were using the gentle whispers of God's love as white noise to help them sleep, while the cries of the poor outside their window were ignored. God's people were spiritually comatose. They were almost flatlining. And Amos' message was like a roar of a lion to awaken them, to rouse them from their sleep. We can't deny for a moment that God's judgment in this book is truly bitter. But it is bitter as a medicine. It's meant to restore God's people's life back to spiritual health. So I want you to keep this in mind as we look at this passage this morning. This message is going to be very hard to swallow. It's especially difficult to apply, but it is still good because it reveals the heart of Jesus Christ. So let's get into the passage this morning. We're going to be looking at it under three headings. First, God's judgment over his people. And second, the reasons behind it. And third, our response to it. So let's look first at God's judgment over his people. They say that every family is unique, and this is especially true of God's family story with the nation of Israel. 
You see, thousands of years before Amos, all the nations of the world were worshiping other gods. And God, the creator of the universe, chose Abraham to begin his family line. And Abraham's family line would lead to the 12 tribes of Israel and then eventually to the nation of Israel itself. And God bestowed on Abraham a unique family blessing. They will be the source of blessing to all the other nations of the world. And years later, when Abraham's offspring was stuck in the pit of slavery in Egypt, God would again reestablish Abraham's family as his people. Listen to these words about how close God feels to Israel from Deuteronomy 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession. Of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is why the Lord has brought you out of the house of slavery. This is what Amos means when he says to Israel on behalf of God, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. God had an exclusive intimate relationship with Israel. Now in a healthy family, parents work hard to make sure that the needs of their children are met, and this was especially true of God's relationship with Israel. He was a great provider for Israel. He brought them into a good land with abundant harvests. He gave them materials to build their homes, generations of children, so that their future would be secure. But with such privilege came great responsibility. From the very beginning, God warned his people in the covenant, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, I solemnly warn you today that you shall truly perish. Now Amos testifies that that day is just around the corner for Israel. As we look at the language Amos uses, God has become like a betrayed spouse. So he pushes Israel out of, out of the house because they won't stop their infidelity. Israel became hardened criminals. They stood before God's judgment seat, not with a humble, but with a haughty gaze. And now God says to them, I have no choice anymore but to punish you for all your iniquities. That's what he says in verse 2. And it's not like Israel didn't know any better. They weren't like the other nations. They attended worship services regularly where the Bible was read They would have heard laws just like this. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. And they thought to themselves, well, since there will always be poor, I might as well just ignore them. They would have sang songs with lyrics like this. 
from Psalm 72, 12. God delivers the needy when they call, the poor and they who have no help. And they thought to themselves, well, since God is the one who delivers the needy, let him take care of them. It wasn't because their Bibles were closed that God's people lived in this way. It's because their hearts were closed when their Bibles were open. So what is God to do? Well, if his law couldn't penetrate their hearts, maybe his logic would get to their minds. And that's what we see next. So first we saw God's judgment over Israel. Now we look at the reasons behind this judgment. He tries to reason with his people. He begins in verse 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreement? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? All the way down, God poses these questions to Israel. And the implied answer to all of these questions is no. These things don't happen by accident. They have a cause and effect relationship. I think it's easier to see what Amos is doing when we put these things positively. Do people go out for walks together unless they agree? When you hear a lion roar, doesn't it mean he has caught his prey? When a bird is snatched out of mid-flight, doesn't it mean that there was a trap set in the ground? If a trumpet is blown or alarm sounds, doesn't that mean that disaster is coming? And the people would have said, yes, yes, yes. And here's Amos' takeaway point. Then if all these things have a cause and effect relationship, doesn't it mean that when disaster comes to the city, It's because the Lord has done it, that it was God's doing. They may have been able to dodge God's law all these years, but the logic of God here is inescapable. In a short time, an earthquake will overtake Israel, and after that, the Assyrians will wipe out the northern kingdom, never to be established again. Now, I want to put a parenthesis here. We know that for Israel, these calamities, this earthquake and war coming upon them was for their disobedience to God because the Bible gives that reason. God, it's true, is sovereign over every calamity in history, but we can't always infer the reasons for it. In other words, Amos is divinely inspired And our interpretation of our times could be wrong. In fact, Amos reminds us that he has unique insight in verse 7 when he says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. In other words, if we see events like earthquakes or war around our world, we cannot be so quick to judge that this is because God is judging people. Now, worse than an earthquake or to be overtaken by the Assyrians, Israel's own enemies are going to show up to testify against them. In verse 8, Egypt and the Philistine city of Ashdod will hear God's judgment that Israel is filled with thieves and exploiters. Just think about that. Egypt was Israel's oppressor. And the Philistines waged war on Israel several times. And these are the nations that God calls to witness against his people. 
What's the sense of doing that? Why is God doing that? It's to rob his people of any sense of moral superiority. What can be more humbling than for God to speak against us in the presence of our worst rivals? Nothing could be as devastating to human pride. And God's not done yet. God strips his people of any moral superiority, any spiritual pride. Then he topples down the physical symbols of their pride in verses 14 and 15. He says, I will punish the altars of Bethel, meaning their places of worship in the high places. And then he says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the house of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. He crushes the pride they had in their worship and in their wealth. And not a stone in their temples and not a stone in their homes is going to be left unturned. You know, in Exodus, God describes his character in this way. That he is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's God's reputation. Well, if God is that way, and this is his response to human pride, our conclusion is not that God is unjust, but that human pride is really that bad. You see, God must remove the pride from their hearts. Why? So he can resume covenant relationship with them. God will stop at nothing to grab a hold of us again, lest we perish. Pride has no room in the spiritual life. In fact, St. Augustine famously said that pride is the beginning of all sin. And what Amos is going to show us is how this pride corrupts, not just on a personal level, but on a systemic level, and how it disenfranchises people on the margins. So what are the examples in our day of these structural evils that Amos rails against? Well, I have to be honest and say that it wasn't until I lived in a big city and worked in public health that for really for the first time I began to think about why are things breaking down for people on the margin so easily? How does that happen? I started to be confronted with examples on a daily basis in my line of work. You see, part of my job was to do clinical assessments for up to two hours with each patient trying to understand their clinical history, trying to come up with a plan of recovery for them. And I would ask all kinds of questions about their substance use, about their health background, about their educational background, about where they lived. And after doing a ton of these, I took a step back and I started to ask some pretty innocent questions. Why is it that poor people seem to spend the most on cigarettes? Why does it seem that many of my black clients are renters even though they have lived in the city for generations? When the primary breadwinner in the family keeps getting incarcerated for non-violence drug offenses, how does that affect family income over the years? 
How did the lack of access to grocery stores with fresh fruits affect the diets of the poor and their health conditions? How did the fact that several locations of Planned Parenthood were throughout the city, how did that affect the birth rate of minority populations? And as I looked at these questions, my eyes were open to see how the sin of pride infects the structures of society in both the public and private realms. And although I did not personally perpetuate these evils, I started to see how my indifference shared the same roots of sin as these entities. In other words, I realized my ignorance was connected to the sin of pride. Yes, there were many things that I did not know, but also what was it that was causing me that made it hard for me to even see these things? That was a challenge for me to reckon with. So the question is, how are we to respond to these evils? That's our third heading. How are we to respond to these social evils? Well, Jesus' words from Luke's gospel points us a way forward. First of all, in that passage, Jesus exposes our hearts. He says to his disciples, listen, it's in your sinful nature to keep amassing stuff for yourself when you get anxious about what? You get anxious about tomorrow. You start wondering if you're going to ever have enough. But he says, don't let your anxiety rule you. Seek the Father's kingdom, and you'll get the very best, and you'll have enough. Why? Because God knows exactly what it is you need. We can't allow fear to prevent us from living the way that Jesus Christ calls us to live with our stuff. And then after he takes away the reason to be afraid, he says this to them, sell your possessions and give to the needy. In contrast to the nations and to Israel in Amos' day, Jesus' disciples are called to use their resources. They're called to use their time. They're called to use their wealth. They're called to use their talents to improve the lives of those on the margins. So just one example from my line of work I was doing. I had to educate clients that cigarette companies disproportionately advertise in black communities. We had to develop programs that would incentivize smoking cessation of cigarettes. That was just one small way that we can begin to work against such evils. And there were similar solutions that we tried to come up with to deal with homelessness, food deserts, and unending incarceration for nonviolent drug offenders. Now, these are just examples from the line of work that I was doing. You have to think about what are the examples in your line of work. Where do you encounter social evil? And what should we do about it? Well, I love what the late author and professor Ron Sider says about what Christians should do to address social evils. He says, we each have our own unique gifts and calling. God wants many of us to fast and pray about social sin. Most should study and many should write and speak out. Some should join and support organizations promoting social justice. Others should run for political office. 
All of us ask how changes in our personal lifestyle can help model a better world. But God does not want anyone to feel guilty for not doing everything or for taking time off for relaxation and recreation. But everyone should prayerfully ask God what limited specific things God wants him or her to concentrate on. And the way that this work begins is when we start to become aware of what's going on around us. A place to start is to look up local organizations in Trenton or even in our community here where struggling members are helped. Whether it's food banks, shelters, prisons, after-school programs like the Mind a Gap program, this is what Amos' words would call us to do. This is what the legacy of Jesus would call us to do. One of the reasons that I am proud to call myself an evangelical is because the evangelical church has a rich history of not only preaching the gospel, having Christ-centered worship, but also having significant social action in society. The Lausanne Covenant is an agreement that thousands of evangelical churches signed from all around the world, and one of its commitments in that document is, we affirm that God is both the creator and the judge of all men. We therefore should share his concern for justice and reconciliation throughout human society and for the liberation of men from every kind of oppression. What a commitment. What a value to stand for. One of the best historical examples we can learn from is actually a Jersey native by the name of John Woolman from Burlington, New Jersey. He was an evangelical Quaker who lived in the 18th century and although he had no formal education, he started a successful business that involved tailoring, uh, selling retail goods, farming, and legal contracts. He was a very talented guy. Now, over time, his love for God started to prick his conscience about how he cared for others. You see, for John, the worship of God was directly tied to how he used his resources for the good of others. And pretty early on in his Christian journey, he resolved, I would never practice, I, I would never participate in any practice that would harm another, either directly or indirectly. And he became a dedicated abolitionist who spoke out against the evils of slavery in the United States and in England. He also refused to eat sugar. He also refused to wear clothes with various colors of uh, dye colors because they were produced by slaves. He helped fellow Quakers make arrangements to set free their slaves in their lifetime, and if not in their lifetime, for when they died and left, left, um, freed, freed their slaves in, in their will. It's really quite amazing what he had achieved by the end of his life. But here's the reason I'm bringing up John Woolman. Here's why I want to tell you about him. When John was young and was just entering the aristocracy, meaning the highly respected and wealthy class of society, it was customary to wear a sword at your side. 
And at first that didn't bother him. It was just a customary thing, something you wore. But as his faith grew and his Quaker beliefs started to to really take root in his heart, wearing that sword became a little uneasy for him. Because Quakers are pacifists. They don't believe in engaging with anything related to violence. And he was unsure what to do about that. So he asked his mentor, and his mentor said to him this, Wear the sword only as long as you can. Wear the sword only as long as you can. And what that meant was that as John was more and more steeped in the teachings of Jesus, the more his conscience became more sensitive about how he can help others around him. The more he got to know Jesus, the more he wanted his lifestyle to reflect Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, about what we are to do with possessions and giving. And eventually, John gave up his sword. You see, the more closely he walked with Jesus, the more socially concerned he became. In other words, his mentor didn't say to him, just get rid of it. No. He gave John the space for God to work on John's heart in his own time. It was something that John had to come to. And that's a wonderful approach when we think about what is it that we can do about social evils around us. God has to work in our hearts and in our minds in his own way and in his own time. It's not something we do out of guilt, but because we become more and more convinced of the truth and goodness of the gospel of Christ. You see... If the way that we use our possessions and all that we have at the beginning of following Jesus is the same than when we come to the end of our life, something is not right. As we get to know Jesus, the more we will reflect his values and his kingdom living in the world. These are hard words. These are hard words to read. These are hard words to preach. And these are hard words to hear. But the truth of the matter is this. Jesus reminds us that when we seek his kingdom, all that we need will be given to us. And that when we store treasures up, not on earth, but in heaven, we will never lose anything. This is a bold and challenging call, but this is a good and gracious call. Why? Because Jesus Christ is inviting us to do life the way that he does. And may he give us the grace to do what he says. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, For our sakes, you became poor. And you love the needy of this world. You love all people. And you will not start your great banquet feast until the least have come to the table. Lord, forgive us for the way that we have been blinded to the needs of others. 
especially to those in the margin. We thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you awaken our consciences so that we can make different decisions and use our resources differently. Lord, I'm so grateful that so many in the congregation already do this kind of work. They already share freely what they have. They already are involved in so many ways. But, oh Lord, living in a consumerist culture, it's so easy to be distracted about caring for others in their need and to amass our own resources. So would you, by your spirit, give us the grace to be different And by our difference, may the world know that we are truly your disciples. In your name we pray. Amen.